Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 8, Episode 55. I wrapped up the last episode at the end of Judges 8 with the death of the Judge Gideon. Judges 9 begins with what happened right after that, the rise of one of his sons. And with that, let's get started. Judges chapter 9 brings forward one of Gideon's 70 sons, the same Abimelech who was mentioned in the last chapter, who went to Sheshem, to his mother's family, to all of them, and asked, Which is better for you, that all 70 of Gideon's sons rule over you, or that one rule over you? And keep in mind that before he did, well, well before, likely some 40 years earlier, the Israelites offered Gideon, his son, and his grandson, an inheritable monarchy, an offer he refused. So now, after his father's death, Abimelech asked his closest relatives what they think about this rather loose situation. His question seems a bit rhetorical, but it wasn't. Abimelech then reminds his mother's family that he is their relative and that this is where his father, Gideon's relationship with his mother, is important. She was his concubine, which also likely means he's their only connection to the house of Gideon and to the seeming power that went along with that. And recall from the recent deep dive into the later story about the Levite's concubine that this likely meant Abimelech's mother was married to Gideon, but she was either of a lower social standing or did not have an Israelite heritage, perhaps a Canaanite woman. More on that in a minute. This also meant that, if not for Abimelech, his mother's relatives are essentially nobodies, especially in relation to the ruling Israelites. Powerless. They do what they do, and tell Abimelech they will follow him. All of this occurring within the earshot of what the text calls the town's lords, probably meaning the elders, maybe the other rulers. His mother's family then gives him 70 pieces of silver, silver pieces that came from the temple of Belbirith, further indicating a potential Canaanite heritage. Also recall, and I've mentioned this a time or two, but at that time, silver may have been more valuable than gold. Abimelech takes the money and hires what are described as worthless and reckless fellows. That's the actual phrase, not a ringing endorsement. The NIV calls them reckless scoundrels, while the King James says they are vain and light. Take your pick. None of them complimentary, some worse than others. These fellows then become Abimelech's followers. He then went to his father's house in the town of Ophrah and killed all of his brothers, all slaughtered on the same stone, everyone except Jotham, who lived because he hid. Immediately after this, the leaders of both Sheshem and Beth Milo made Abimelech their king, with the coronation occurring beside the oak of the pillar at Sheshem, likely the pillar and oak present in both the stories of Abraham and Joshua, a well-known ancient landmark. Jotham hears of all of this, climbs to the top of Mount Gerizim, and shouts at the top of his lungs to the rulers of Sheshem. What does he tell them? A parable that's become known as the parable of the trees. 
I'll forego a recitation. Just know it's a story about how the trees of character, ones that are busy producing good fruit, do not become rulers. Instead, those acting in bad faith should be consumed by fire. Jotham then asked them if they acted in good faith and honor when they made Abimelech their king, and if they dealt fairly with Gideon, having done for him and his house as they deserved. He then reminds them that his father fought for them, rescuing them from Midian. And what did they do in return? Killed Gideon's sons and made Abimelech, the son of his slave, their king. Which gives us further insight into why his mother was called a concubine, not just a lower social standing and potentially Canaanite, but also a slave. Back in the parable, why did they kill Jotham's brothers? Only because of his relationship to them. Then, a challenge. If they believe that they have acted in good faith, then they should rejoice. But if they did not act in good faith, then he hopes they're consumed by fire. What happens next? Nothing. Nothing except Jotham runs away and flees to the city of Beer, where he lived in fear of his brothers, and nothing else, at least not immediately. Abimelech would rule over Israel for three years. Then, God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the lords of Sheshem, who began their treachery towards their king. Things such as setting ambushes on mountaintops, robbing all who passed by presumably said the robberies would be reported to the king. At some point, a man named Gaul moved to Sheshem. From where? Who knows? The text is silent. The leaders of the city were so overjoyed with the newcomer that they threw a party in the Canaanite temple. At the party, they went as far as to make fun of the king, a decision aided by copious amounts of flowing wine. Gaul speaks up, saying, Who is Abimelech, and why should we serve him? Gaul then reminds the people that Abimelech's father, Gideon, had at one time been subservient to Sheshem. Why should they now be subservient to him? Gaul then lobbies for the leaders to make him king, so that he can dispatch Abimelech. But not everyone thought highly of the plan. The ruler of the city, Zebul, sends word of it to Abimelech, asking him to quickly bring his army to put the interloper down. Abimelech doesn't take the threat lightly, sending four companies of soldiers to the city, maybe as quickly as overnight. Gaul sees the approaching troops, assembles his forces, and heads to the battlefield. Abimelech swiftly defeats Gaul, with the newly arrived threat, along with his family fleeing from whence he came, wherever that was. The next day, the people of the city went out to the fields, likely as part of the normal agricultural process, sowing, reaping, something. Abimelech finds out about this and sets a trap, sending his troops to lay there and wait. There, he has the people of Sheshem killed, all of them, maybe even the leader who had notified him of what was going on. He burned the city and sowed the ground with salt, like the Romans are said to have done at Carthage after the Third Punic War, fought some 1,000 years later. While this certainly sounds extreme, it's believed to have been a not-so-rare tradition in the region 
after putting down a rebellion. Then, the narrative apparently skips backwards, or something was lost in translation, as some of the leaders of Sheshem took refuge in the Canaanite temple. Abimelech has his men gather up firewood, placing it against the tower where the leaders were hiding. You should be able to guess what happened next. When it was over, the 1,000 or so people hiding in the tower were dead too, burned. All of this in his hometown. He then headed to the city of Thebes. The people there hid in their tower too. He executes the same fire plan, once again gathering up wood. But before he could finish them, a woman throws a millstone from the tower, one that manages to find the top of Abimelech's head. But it doesn't quite kill him, instead just severely injuring. He calls for his armor-bearer, asking the young man to finish him off. He tells the servant why, so that people will not say about me, a woman killed him. The servant does as asked, and that's that for Abimelech, the wayward son of Gideon. When the Israelites saw that he was dead, everyone went home. This also, roughly, aligns with Jotham's parable of the trees, the people being consumed by fire, which is the end of Judges 9. The beginning of chapter 10 is succinct and points out how we know so much about some of the people of the era and so little about others. Abimelech, who wasn't even a judge and ruled over part of Israel for only three years, his history was recorded in over 1,600 words. Next up, according to chapter 10, was the judge Tola. All we're told about him is that he was the son of Pua, son of Dodo, and was from the tribe of Issachar, lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim, rose to deliver Israel, and was a judge for 23 years, with nothing said about what happened in that time. When he died, he was buried in his hometown. And that's it. Next up was a judge named Jair the Gileadite. Like Tola, there's little recorded about him. He judged for 22 years. Then, a little detail that, like much of the Old Testament, likely added context and meaning to the readers of the era, but is lost on us. Well, at least on me. He had 30 sons who rode 30 donkeys and lived in 30 towns of Gilead. My guess is that meant they were somewhat rich and powerful and lived in a very specific area. But then again, they were donkeys, not iron chariots. Maybe they were middle class. The towns where they all lived would end up being referred to as Havath Jair to this day, whenever that was. When Jair died, he was buried in Cayman. So, these two judges were in power for a total of 45 years and merited some 90 words total. It's unclear if they judged at the same time over different parts of Israel or if they were consecutive. Note that this time span was longer than the Exodus and the Wanderings, stories that took up several books of the Pentateuch. But of these two guys, we know almost nothing. It was almost a dark age of history, at least in the biblical text. 
After this, the Israelites reverted to what you knew they would do, worshipping Canaanite deities, the Baals and Astartes, along with the gods of Aram, Sidon, Moab, the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. But not their god, the Deliverer. And you know what's coming. As he's already told them, he's a jealous god. He gets angry and sells them to the Philistines and to the Ammonites. There's an odd little phrase in the text, and that's that God turned them over to their enemies that year. In my mind, it refers to the specific year that the last judge mentioned, Jer, the year that he died. Rather specific for an ambiguous part of the text. That year, whichever year it was, the Philistines and Ammonites crushed, then oppressed the Israelites. These two groups would maintain control over the Israelites for 18 years, ruling over an area said to include the land beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. Then an interesting tidbit. The Ammonites would also cross the Jordan to fight against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was greatly distressed. What this tells me is that in these 18 years, they, meaning at least the Ammonites, did not control all of Israel. Only, or maybe mostly, that east of the Jordan, save what were likely skirmishes with three tribes to the west of the river, which was also where the Philistines lived. At some point after this, the Israelites came to their senses and cried out for help admitting that they had abandoned God and worshipped foreign gods. There's no mention of the other regional deities they also turned to. God answered them with a reminder that he not only delivered them from the Egyptians, but also the Amorites, Ammonites, and Philistines, plus the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Monites. The last one seems to be a new addition to the list. These were people from the region known as Mon. God was a little more than fed up with their repeated cycle of turning from him, getting themselves in a pickle, crying out for help, being rescued, then turning away again. He tells them, and this is a quote, You have abandoned me and worshipped other gods. Therefore, I will deliver you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them deliver you in your time of distress. The Israelites didn't relent, though, telling God, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you, but deliver us this day. They put away the foreign gods from among them and worshipped the Lord. He could no longer bear to see Israel suffer. After this, but we're not told how long afterwards, the Ammonites were called to arms and encamped near Gilead. At the same time, the Israelites came together probably meaning several tribes united and camped at Mizpah. The commanders of the people of Gilead said to one another, Who will begin the fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Essentially, if you're brave enough, or crazy enough to be at the front of the charge, and you live, we'll make you our leader. Which is the end of chapter 10. Chapter 11 has a judge rising up. But given the length and details of his story, that will have to wait until next week. Join me then. You don't want to miss it. 
Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes or wherever you get the podcast from. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast is three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.